as we continue in our series entitled The Life of Joy from Philippians chapters 1 and 2, we want to look at this passage again, but in a little bit different way than we've looked at it over the last couple weeks. The last couple weeks we've emphasized the Christian unity that we have because of Christ and his unity with the Father. But today, we want to consider what's the basis of the good news of Jesus, the basis of the gospel. What's central to it all? And what Paul is going to tell us in this passage is that the answer is simple. The center of it all is Jesus Christ as Lord and God. Some of you in history might be familiar with the um, very well-known expression of Julius Caesar. Vini, vidi, vici. I came, I saw, I conquered. A famous phrase after he won a decisive military victory. That was his message back to Rome, back to headquarters, as it were. I came, I saw, I conquered. And yet that phrase could also be applied to Jesus and his coming to earth and the work he did, especially as we remember it during the Easter season. He came, he saw our need, and he conquered. And we'll see how exactly he did that conquering. But what Paul tells us as he reviews the life of Jesus is he begins, first of all, with Jesus in heaven, and then he descends to the earth. And at the end, we'll see Jesus back, ascended back to heaven once again. But in between, he summarizes perfectly for us what was involved in Jesus' coming. What happened and what resulted from his coming and what he did while he was on earth. And we'll learn, as Paul tells us at the, verse, the end of verse 11, that Jesus Christ is Lord. The lordship of Jesus, who he was and the true meaning of Easter, is the center of it all. Now, many people today want to know the future. It would be really lovely to know exactly what the stock market's going to do if we're going to head into World War III, what's going to happen with globalization and the current conflicts around the world and the tensions that are being felt between nations. We'd also love to know, just more personally, what exactly is going to happen for us in the future? Will we stay in our current occupation? Will we stay in our current location? Or do we need to change jobs, change locations, move to a different city? All those sorts of things. What about our family? All of us would love to know with a bit more certainty what lies ahead of us. And that's natural. But that's not the primary focus of the Christian scriptures for the Christian. Although the, the scriptures do tell us very pointedly, certain things that will happen and we'll find in our passage. One of those is the fact that Jesus, now ascended back into heaven, will be the ultimate judge of the universe and there will be a judgment day that is coming where everyone will stand before him. But even though it does tell us certain things about the future, it's not a crystal ball to tell you everything you ever wanted to know for certainty and security in your own life. Rather, God tells us in his world in his word, I should say, what's going to happen in the world in a, a general sense. He gives us some particular markers. But for the Christian, it's as if he says, if you know the person of Jesus, that is, if you have a relationship with God, your creator, through Jesus who came, then it doesn't matter what the future holds. Because the key is having that relationship with him and knowing he will walk alongside you no matter what. They will worship him. But Jesus, we're told in this passage, in the here and now, should be the center of our lives, the center of our consideration for everyone, not just the Christian, but even for others, because the resurrection of Jesus that we celebrate on Easter Sunday morning is actually the focal point of all human history. 
We're reminded in this passage that it's not enough to believe in God, to have a spiritual philosophy, or even to believe in some unique spiritual supreme being. None of those things can cause a person to have a relationship with God. None of those things can actually change a person's life from the inside out. Rather, what is needed is for a person, yes, to recognize that there is a God, that's true enough, but then to find out how can they have a relationship with that God. That's the key. Just having a concept that there's a God somewhere out there doesn't affect you or I. It doesn't change our day-to-day life. But once we have a relationship with that God and we know we will stand before him one day, it should and it ought to change what we do in the here and now. And we must not add or take away from Jesus as the center. And so Paul's going to highlight that for us. First of all, he shows us in verses 5 to 11 a brief explanation of the person of Jesus and what he came to do. Let me just read that and then make a few comments. It says in verse 5, in your relationship with one another, he's talking to Christians and how they interact with one another, have the mindset of Jesus Christ. Well, what was his mindset? And remember, mindset here means more than just his thoughts. It means what he intended to do in his mind, what he intended to do in his heart, and his actions. It's, it's all that wrapped into one. What did Jesus think and feel and do? Well, verse 6. <clears throat> He was the very nature of God, but he didn't consider equality with God as something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant or a slave and was made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even the cruel death on a cross. That's what he did, and therefore the result is that God has exalted him to the highest place, verse 9, and given him a name above every name, and Paul continues on. What we find here is that Jesus, coming in human form, was equal with God. He has the same characteristics, the same nature as God, verse 6, but he also chose to humble himself by coming in a human form, which was a very limited form, for him to act in that way, verse 7. But then in verse 8, we're told that he did this in order to die a servant's death, a substitutionary death on a cross, the worst form of punishment in that time period. And Jesus, the second person of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, he chose to come and to suffer for his creation. This Jesus who was fully God, he had a full divine nature, a full human nature wrapped in a limited human body, he didn't consider the natural advantages of his position as God, as something that he should hold on to no matter what. He didn't just consider himself and the perks of his position, but rather he gave up those privileges, many of them for a time at least, for our sake, in order to come and do a work that we couldn't do to accomplish reconciliation with God, a connection with God that we couldn't make on our own because of our sin, which separated us from him. And so he dealt with that. And this required a perfect sacrifice, a human substitute to die in order for justice to be satisfied. Only then could humanity be reconnected with God. And that's what he does. And so Paul directs us in verse 11 to this. The end of it all, the center of it all, we might say, is this. At the name of Jesus... Every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the key phrase. Jesus Christ is Lord. Who is this Jesus? Well, he's not just a wonderful spiritual teacher 2,000 years ago. 
He was God in human form. He was not just a nice teacher or promoter of a new ethic or even just a refurbished ethic. Just recently, uh, yesterday as a matter of fact, I was reading in a book and it was quite interesting. They pointed out that Confucius had given the golden rule, what's known as the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, which Jesus taught. And this book was trying to make the argument that Confucius had made that uh, stipulation or that ethical norm long before Jesus, and Jesus just copied it and kind of reused it. But that's exactly wrong. Because what Confucius actually said, depending on the translation, is in the negative, don't do something bad to someone that you wouldn't want them to do to you. That's in the negative. So if you don't want someone to murder you, don't murder them. That's true enough. But what did Jesus say? Positively, do positively unto others what you would want them to do to you. That is quite different. It's not self-serving. It's others serving. It's Godward focused and others serving. And it's positive. That means I can't just get away by saying, I'm not going to hit that other person because I don't want them to hit me, but I'm going to positively act in a loving way towards them because that is what I would want them to do toward me. And I can do all of that, Jesus says in that golden rule, because of how God has loved me. You see, Jesus' ethic, if we want to call it that, was far different than anything else that had come before because he was a very different person than anyone else who had come before His name literally means that he will save his people from their sins. That's Jesus. But he's also the Christ, we're told. What does that mean? Well, it means he's the anointed one. He's a specially chosen one. Well, what was he specially chosen to do? He was specially chosen to come and accomplish something. And that was, in humility, to form some sort of link or bridge between you and I, humanity, and God, our creator. C.F. Alexander has rightly said There was no other one that was good enough to pay the price for sin. That's what he came to do. He was the only good and perfect sacrifice to pay the price for sin because nobody else could put their hand up and offer to take that price. We needed a perfect sacrifice. And so he became that. Both in history and up to the present day, we're familiar with the concept of a priesthood, someone who is a sort of spiritual go-between, for a group of people or a tribe, and a sacrifice. Many cultures still to this day have some concept of a sacrifice. You burn incense or you slaughter an animal or you give uh, some fruit and vegetable in a bowl and you offer that as a sacrifice in some way, shape, or form. Or in more modern day parlance, we may give a sacrifice of money to a temple or a synagogue or a mosque or something like that. But Jesus is both the priest and the sacrifice himself. That is, he's the ultimate priest, but he also chooses to give the ultimate sacrifice, which is sacrificing himself on a cruel cross, because that was the only way that our sins could be forgiven. You see, Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, the priest. He's the everything, the Messiah, the deliverer, and the only one who can make or pave a way of salvation for us. And so he opens that up in and through his sacrifice on the cross. So he's Jesus, the one who will save his people from their sins. He's the Christ, the specially chosen one of God to do the special work that only he can do, which is to link us with God the Father through his sacrifice. And he's also, verse 11, he's Lord. What does that mean? Well, in a general sense, it means he's the master. He's in charge. But it's saying something more specific here. It means he's God. 
This is the Old Testament way of referring to God without using God's name. Because for an Old Testament Jewish individual, they wouldn't want to use God's name. They considered it too holy, too different, too important for us to just banter about. And so rather, they would use something else to express it, usually the generic term, Lord. And that's what's going on here. When, it say, when, it, when Paul says Jesus Christ is Lord, it means he is God, God in human form. Now, C.S. Lewis gives us a wonderful quote here, which is quite helpful. Many people get, get confused, shall we say, or they have very different understandings of who Jesus is. When they consider Jesus in history, a man who lived 2,000 years ago, his existence, from a historic perspective, has been clearly proven. That's not a question anymore. All historians, ancient historians who study this, both those who are Christian, those who are atheists, and everyone in between, they all acknowledge that there was a real person named Jesus who lived during the time period that the New Testament says he lived, and that he did some amazing things, or at least people thought he did some amazing things, and that he was killed on a Roman cross. Those are facts of history. Now, that's not to say all those historians believe the Christian account fully, or that they have all become Christians. Far from it. And yet, the facts are quite clear. But what do we do with this Jesus? He is true. He was in history. There was someone who did and said and taught certain things. We know some of them, at least, even from a skeptical historical perspective. But what do we do with him? How do we judge or evaluate who he was? And we really come down to three, perhaps four, conclusions. He was either a liar, who said a lot of great things and couldn't back it up, or he was a lunatic who thought he was amazing, but was just deranged, or he was Lord. He was who he claimed to be, God in human form. Those are really the only categories left open to us. And Lewis helps point this out. He says <clears throat> in his book, Mere Christianity, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. They often say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. But that is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on level with a man who called himself a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any of this patronizing nonsense about his being a good moral teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Uh, what he argues for there is just an honest evaluation of who this Jesus is. There are only a few options on the table, and you must choose one. So do you, you personally, do you understand this Jesus of Nazareth, that he was a man who walked the face of the earth approximately 2,000 years ago? And do you see him as Lord, the anointed one of God, the Christ, God in human form, the priest and the sacrifice for sin who accomplished our salvation? Do you recognize him as God? Do you worship him as God? Have you been reconciled to God the Father through his sacrifice on the cross? Because we're told in this passage, everyone will one day stand before this Jesus Christ as Lord. There's an interesting anomaly here when it comes to world religions. The two largest monotheistic world religions, Islam and Christianity, both acknowledge 
um, a few key truths in common. Most of what Islam and Christianity teach are diametrically opposed. Uh, either one is true or the other is true or both are false, but they both can't be true. But one of the things they do agree on, and it's written both in the New Testament scriptures and then later on it was written in the Quran 600 years after the New Testament scriptures were completed, is that Jesus Christ will be the judge of all of humanity at the end of time. Jesus Christ will be the judge of all of humanity at the end of time. That's expressly what he stated about himself, and it's what Christians have always believed about him, and later on, the um, Muslim faith took on that belief many hundreds of years later. But that's intriguing to us. What does that tell us, or, or how should that inform how we act now? Well, it means that we have to consider what's coming and live life now in light of what's coming with Jesus as our ultimate judge. Too many wish to turn Christianity into a philosophy or an ethical system, but the central point of Christianity is not, none of that. It's a relationship. A relationship opened up to all of humanity between them and God, their creator. And it all hinges on the person and work of Jesus. So we've seen something about the person of Jesus. Now let's consider the position of Jesus quite quickly. Verses 7 to 9, we're told that he himself humbled himself. He came in a humble form, in a finite human form, in order to accomplish something. But then between verses 8 and 9, when it all turns bad, that is, when he has to go and die on a cross, and even be rejected by his own people, we see this glimpse of the sun peeking through those dark clouds of suffering. The real history of Jesus doesn't end with him dead on a cross. Interestingly, that's one of the differences between Islam and Christianity. In the Quran, written about 600 years after the New Testament eyewitness accounts, they claim that Jesus died on the cross and stayed dead. That's where it ends, for Jesus at least. And yet somehow he's also the judge of the universe in the Quran. It's, it's quite confusing. But that's not where it ended historically. It's not where it ended in the New Testament. Yes, he died on a cross, but three days later he rose from the dead. Now that's an audacious claim. It's actually the central historic claim of all Christianity. And that's what Paul is emphasizing for us. The bodily resurrection of Jesus. Jesus Christ, the Lord, triumphed. That's the claim. Completely and utterly triumphed over sin. He sacrificed himself and accomplished that sacrifice. He paid it in full. One of the last words he said on the cross was, it's finished, it's paid in full. That's what he was accomplishing. But he not only accomplished that, he also beat death, which is the result, inevitably, of sin. He won completely and utterly. He has conquered sin and Satan, death and the grave. The reason... He has been given a name above every name, as it says here, is because of what he accomplished and who he was. Therefore, verse 9, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue shall acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. That glorification, that raising him up, his exalted place happens because of what he accomplished when he was here. And what that means is that he is in utter and complete control. If he is going to be the judge at the end of time, he has power over sin, he accomplished the sacrifice, he came back from the dead, he has a new bodily existence which can no longer be subject to death, and he has been raised to that high place of authority and power, that means 
He is in utter control, complete control. One of the last statements he made before he ascended back into heaven to his followers was, all authority, power, and control has been given to me in heaven and on earth. That is, in all the universe, I have all the control, all the power, all the authority. Jesus is in control, the New Testament says, and guiding, intricately guiding, personally guiding the world to a proper culmination. It will culminate in everyone standing before him one day. Now that is truly comforting for someone who has a relationship with that God, who has accepted that sacrifice and knows what the judgment holds for them, which is that judgment will hold no condemnation for you because Jesus already paid the price on the cross. But for all those who don't have that relationship with God the Father through Jesus the Son, through his sacrifice, you must take the punishment for your sin yourself. And that is a dire prospect. It's a real comfort for Christians during the storms and many uncertainties of life because we know we've received pardon even though we didn't really deserve it at all. And now we can gladly, with that offer and that gift of salvation in our hands, we can gladly stand before God, not afraid of what he's going to do to us, but thankful that all of his anger and justice against sin was poured out on Jesus on the cross for us. We're told Jesus will visibly triumph. And yet many today arrogantly stand in defiance of Jesus. They reject Jesus. They mock Jesus. We see it in TV shows and in books. We see it on the internet every day. We see people use Jesus' name as a curse word. Why do they do that? You never see them use Muhammad's name as a curse word. You never see them use Buddha's name as a curse word. You never see them use any other deity, priest, or prophet, or ethical teacher for that matter, as a curse word. Why do they only do it with Jesus? It is a symptom of mankind's utter rejection of the God who has made them. It is a symptom of their sinful attitude towards their God. They don't want to acknowledge him, the Bible says in Romans chapter 1. We as human beings want to go our own way, and we refuse to acknowledge the God who made us. We may give lip service to him. Oh, yeah, I believe there's a supreme being out there somewhere. But we put him way out there so that we don't have to deal with him. It's just another way of saying, I don't want to deal with him. We refuse to acknowledge him in our day-to-day -day life and acknowledge that we are accountable to him. But the reality is, we are accountable to him, and we will stand before him one day. And he has already accomplished the complete victory. That's the good news of Christianity. He has accomplished all that needs to be accomplished. He has visibly triumphed through his death and his resurrection three days later, and the whole universe will one day acknowledge that. But why should we make the confession that Paul makes here? Jesus Christ is Lord. That was the early Christian confession. When they were when the emperors of Rome would attempt to force the Christians to sacrifice or burn incense to the emperor, to say, the emperor is Lord, they refused. Why? Because Jesus can't be Lord and the emperor of Rome at the same time. And they said, no, Jesus is the only Lord. He's the only God. He's the only ultimate one. He's the only one who has full control. He is the one we're going to worship, not some human emperor who will die in a couple decades. And for that, they were marched to the Colosseum and elsewhere to be killed. Why? Because of a simple Christian confession. But this, it's simple, yes, but it's profound. 
because it changes all of a person's life. It changes your status before a holy God. It changes your outlook because you know you will stand before God, but not on your own basis, but on the basis of Christ one day. And that gives you great comfort. It changes how you live here and now because you are going to live according to God's standard out of love for him, not trying to merit his forgiveness, which you could never do. But why should we make this confession of Jesus Christ as Lord now? Why should we make it in general and why should we make it now? Here's four reasons to consider this Easter Sunday. First, because it's a fact. Because it's a fact. Whether we like it or not, Jesus is Lord. He is God. And just like a natural law such as gravity, we have to choose whether we will try to conform ourselves to that law or not. You can try to refuse gravity as much as you wish, but if you step off of a high-rise building saying, I reject the concept of gravity, you will still fall and plummet to your death and hit the sidewalk below. We must conform to reality or eventually we will be crushed by reality. So, first of all, it's a fact. Secondly, this confession of God is one of God as our creator. It's an appropriate confession, an appropriate expression to say, Jesus Christ is Lord. Because it's true, it's a fact, and because it acknowledges God as our creator. It brings glory and praise to the one who made us, created us in his image, and that's good and appropriate. So it's both a fact and it's appropriate. But thirdly, because there are consequences when we reject reality. There are consequences for not making this confession or refusing to acknowledge Jesus as Lord in our lifetime. To make this confession means that we've, the Bible says, passed from death to life, from judgment to forgiveness and security. It means that we become a child of God, a citizen of a heavenly kingdom distinct from this world, a kingdom that can never be destroyed. By the way, you want to know hope for the future? You want to have absolute certainty of what the future holds, regardless of what the next few decades hold here on this earth? Why not get a passport for a completely different kingdom that can never be destroyed? Why not put your money, your time, your energy, your efforts after you have acknowledged Jesus as Lord and God, why not put it in something that will last for eternity? That is a far better investment. That is a far more certain outcome. It's a far better trust to trust in the God who made us and the promises that he made which can never be undone. If we truly make this confession, it means that we are in such a relationship with God that whatever may happen, nothing can separate us from his love. And that's the most important thing. Nothing can separate us from his love and nothing can separate us from his person for all of eternity. That is a wonderful, absolute promise for a real future. But if we refuse to make that confession now, it means that you then have to bear the punishment for your own sin when you stand before him. And that you belong to those people who will confess one day that he is Lord, but you will do it against your will and it will profit you nothing at the end. So it's in your own interest to do it now rather than waiting until it's too late. So it's both a fact, it's appropriate to respond to God our creator in the way he has told us to, and it's in your best interest. But fourthly, you might say practically or subjectively, this confession brings comfort, real comfort in this life. It brings comfort, I should emphasize this, you should not become a Christian because of the outcome of Christianity, one of which is comfort. 
if you understand my meaning. Don't become a Christian because of the benefits of Christianity. That's not the appropriate reason to become a Christian. However, because Christianity is true, because Jesus Christ is Lord, when you acknowledge that and bow before him and become a Christian and receive his sacrifice on the cross for your sin and have that relationship with him now because of what he's done for you, when that happens, there are real practical life outcomes such as the comfort that reality brings. And it brings comfort because it's true, because it's a reality. When a person truly makes that confession, and here I want to emphasize what I mean when I say make that confession. We don't just mean simply saying like a mantra, the words, Jesus Christ is Lord. Anyone can say that. That doesn't make a person a Christian. But this confession is more than merely saying those few words. It's saying those words while understanding them in our mind, feeling them in our heart, and responding to them with a proper attitude of humility before God as we acknowledge our sin and ask his forgiveness. The person who truly makes that confession with the proper heart attitude, we might say, or in proper humility before God, they begin to worship Jesus. Jesus is the one they acknowledge, not just in that moment, but for the rest of their life. He's the one to whom they pray. He is the one for whom they live their life now on this earth. It changes their priorities. It changes their mentality. It changes their outlook. It changes how they respond to family and friends and their work. And everything about life now is seen through a different lens. To quote C.S. Lewis again, he says it this way. He says, I believe in Christianity not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. What he's saying there is that Christianity is a bit like a window. The purpose of a window is not for you to stare at the pane of glass in the window. The purpose of a window is so that you can stare through the window to what's outside. And he says that's what Christianity is, a, is like. It's a bit like a different window, a different way of seeing, a different pair of glasses. In practical terms, that's the outcome. It makes you see everything differently. And Jesus, we're told, knows how it feels to be a human being. He knows the troubles and trials and the challenges that we experience, which gives us great comfort to know that he sympathizes with us as one who himself lived in a human form and experienced all those limitations for many years. Furthermore, we know he is in complete control both now and throughout eternity, and he will never leave us in this life or in the one to come. Julius Caesar could say, I came... I saw, I conquered. Fair enough, but where's Julius Caesar today? Where's the Roman Empire that he led for many years? All gone. And everyone in it will one day still have to stand before Jesus on Judgment Day. Jesus, the true Lord and God, is not going to be impressed at Julius Caesar's military victories. As interesting as they may be from a historic perspective. Because that is not the criteria for what will happen to us on Judgment Day. It's what we've done with Jesus. It's how we've responded to God, our creator. But Jesus, what did he do? Using that same mantra, I came, I saw, I conquered. Jesus came, but he came in humility. He saw with clarity our need as human beings. And he conquered, not with military might, but with a loving sacrifice in order that we might have a relationship with God, our creator. That is why he is the basis of all, the center of all. 
Is he the center of your life? That's another way of saying, are you a Christian? If you're a Christian, he's the center of your life. If he's the center of your life, then you are a Christian. They're the same thing. Now, that's different from someone claiming to be a Christian. Many people claim to be Christian. But Jesus is not the center of their life, and they are a hypocrite and not a true follower of his. We're talking about what the Bible says about being a Christian, which is Jesus as the fundamental center of your existence and you having a relationship with God because of his sacrifice. Is that true of you? Have you begun to follow him? Have you humbled yourself before him and confessed your sin to him and confessed him as Lord and God? It's another way of asking, do you have a relationship with him that will last through eternity? A relationship that he instigated because of his love for you. If not, you can begin to have one this Easter Sunday morning by accepting his sacrifice. By accepting him as the center of your existence, which once again is merely an acknowledgement of the reality, the fact that he is Lord and God. Responding in an appropriate way to God, your creator, who tells you to do this, something that is in your own interest and something that brings about true results because reality, truth, always affects us in very practical terms. Do you know this Jesus? Do you have a relationship with God? Is he the center of your existence? If not, why not make that happen today? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Jesus, the Son, came and that your spirit guided him in his earthly life and continues to guide individuals who seek him today. Guides them by causing them to be attracted to the person and work of Jesus. Guides them by causing them to begin to ask questions about who am I, where do I come from, where am I going, what is life all about, all of these ultimate questions which are so necessary and yet so seldom asked by humanity. I pray that you will help each individual here to think about their life in light of eternity and the judgment that is coming. We will all stand before you one day. And if we have not proclaimed and lived under Jesus Christ as Lord and God in this life, we will acknowledge it one day, but it will be too late. I pray that every individual here who has heard your words in this passage will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, will have that relationship with you, will have their sins forgiven, and will humble themselves before you, their creator, before it's too late, before that judgment day comes. And then I ask that all those who have bowed the knee to you and responded to Jesus Christ as Lord and God would live out the implications of that truth. They would continue to apply that reality to every aspect of their existence in the here and now until they stand before you one day. We thank you that because of what Jesus did on the cross, it is finished. There's nothing more that we could do to contribute to it or to try to earn it but rather you did everything that was necessary. We thank you that you are a good and great and ultimate Savior. In the name of Christ, amen.